Chapter eighteen of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume three, by Louis Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Gillian Hendry. Chapter eighteen, seventeen ninety nine. Arrival at Jaffa, the siege, Beauharnais and Croisier, four thousand prisoners, scarcity of provisions, councils of war, dreadful necessity the massacre, the plague, Lan and the mountaineers, barbarity of Jizer, arrival at Saint-Jean-d'Arc and abortive attacks, Sir Sidney Smith, death of Caffarelli, Duroc wounded, rash bathing, insurrections in Egypt. On arriving before Jaffa, where there were already some troops, the first person I met was Adjutant-General Grosjou, with whom I was well acquainted. I wished him good day, and offered him my hand. "'Good God! What are you about?' said he, repulsing me with a very abrupt gesture. "'You may have the plague. People do not touch each other here.' I mentioned the circumstance to Bonaparte, who said, "'If he be afraid of the plague, he will die of it.' Shortly after, at Saint-Jean-d'Arc, he was attacked by that malady, and soon sank under it. On the 4th of March, we commenced the siege of Jaffa. That paltry place, which, to round a sentence, was pompously styled the ancient Joppa, held out only to the 6th of March, when it was taken by storm and given up to pillage. The massacre was horrible. General Bonaparte sent his aide-de-camp, Beauharnais and Croisier, to appease the fury of the soldiers as much as possible, and to report to him what was passing. They learned that a considerable part of the garrison had retired into some vast buildings, a sort of caravanserai, which formed a large enclosed court. Beauharnais and Croisier, who were distinguished by wearing the aide-de-camp scarf on their arms, proceeded to that place. The Arnauds and Albanians, of whom these refugees were almost entirely composed, cried from the windows that they were willing to surrender upon an assurance that they would be exempted from the massacre to which the town was doomed. If not, they threatened to fire on the aide-de-camp and to defend themselves to the last extremity. The two officers thought that they ought to accede to the proposition, notwithstanding the decree of death which had been pronounced against the whole garrison in consequence of the town being taken by storm. They brought them to our camp in two divisions, one consisting of about 2,500 men, the other of about 1,600. I was walking with General Bonaparte in front of his tent when he beheld this mass of men approaching, and before he even saw his aide-de-camp, he said to me in a tone of profound sorrow, "'What do they wish me to do with these men?' Have I food for them? Ships to convey them to Egypt or France? Why, in the devil's name, have they served me thus? After their arrival, and the explanations which the general-in-chief demanded and listened to with anger, Eugène and Croisier received the most severe reprimand for their conduct. But the deed was done. Four thousand men were there. It was necessary to decide upon their fate. The two aides-de-camp, observed that they had found themselves alone in the midst of numerous enemies, and that he had directed them to restrain the carnage. Yes, doubtless, 
replied the general-in-chief with great warmth as to women children and old men all the peaceable inhabitants but not with respect to armed soldiers it was your duty to die rather than bring these unfortunate creatures to me what do you want me to do with them these words were pronounced in the most angry tone the prisoners were then ordered to sit down and were placed without any order in front of the tents their hands tied behind their backs a sombre determination was depicted on their countenances we gave them a little biscuit and bread squeezed out of the already scanty supply for the army on the first day of their arrival a council of war was held in the tent of the general-in-chief to determine what course should be pursued with respect to them the council deliberated a long time without coming to any decision on the evening of the following day the daily reports of the generals of division came in they spoke of nothing but the insufficiency of the rations the complaints of the soldiers of their murmurs and discontent at seeing their bread given to enemies who had been withdrawn from their vengeance inasmuch as a decree of death in conformity with the laws of war had been passed on jaffa all these reports were alarming and especially that of general bon in which no reserve was made he spoke of nothing less than the fear of a revolt which would be justified by the serious nature of the case the council assembled again all the generals of division were summoned to attend and for several hours together they discussed under separate questions what measures might be adopted with the most sincere desire to discover and execute one which would save the lives of these unfortunate prisoners one should they be sent into egypt could it be done to do so it would be necessary to send with them a numerous escort which would too much weaken our little army in the enemy's country how besides could they and the escort be supported till they reached cairo having no provisions to give them on setting out and their route being through a hostile territory which we had exhausted which presented no fresh resources and through which we perhaps might have to return two should they be embarked where were the ships where could they be found all our telescopes directed over the sea could not descry a single friendly sail bonaparte i affirm would have regarded such an event as a real favour of fortune it was and i am glad to have to say it this sole idea this sole hope which made him brave for three days the murmurs of his army but in vain was help looked for seaward it did not come three should the prisoners be set at liberty they would then instantly proceed to st jean d'arc to reinforce the pacha or else throwing themselves into the mountains of nablus would greatly annoy our rear and right flank and deal out death to us as a recompense for the life we had given them there could be no doubt of this what is a christian dog to a turk it would even have been a religious and meritorious act in the eye of the prophet for could they be incorporated disarmed with our soldiers in the ranks here again the question of food presented itself in all its force next came to be considered the danger of having such comrades while marching through an enemy's country 
what might happen in the event of a battle before Saint-Jean-d'Arc? Could we even tell what might occur during the march? And finally, what must be done with them when under the ramparts of that town, if we should be able to take them there? The same embarrassments with respect to the questions of provisions and security would then recur with increased force. The third day arrived, without its being possible, anxiously as it was desired, to come to any conclusion favourable to the preservation of these unfortunate men. The murmurs in the camp grew louder. The evil went on increasing. Remedy appeared impossible. The danger was real and imminent. The order for shooting the prisoners was given and executed on the 10th of March. We did not, as has been stated, separate the Egyptians from the other prisoners. There were no Egyptians. Many of the unfortunate creatures composing the smaller division, which was fired on close to the sea coast, at some distance from the other column, succeeded in swimming to some reefs of rocks out of the reach of musket shot. The soldiers rested their muskets on the sand, and to induce the prisoners to return, employed the Egyptian signs of reconciliation in use in the country. They came back, but as they advanced, they were killed and disappeared among the waves. I confine myself to these details of this act of dreadful necessity, of which I was an eyewitness. Others who, like myself, saw it, have fortunately spared me the recital of the sanguinary result. This atrocious scene, when I think of it, still makes me shudder, as it did on the day I beheld it. And I would wish it were possible for me to forget it, rather than be compelled to describe it. All the horrors imagination can conceive relative to that day of blood would fall short of the reality. I have related the truth, the whole truth. I was present at all the discussions, all the conferences, all the deliberations. I had not, as may be supposed, a deliberative voice, but I am bound to declare that the situation of the army the scarcity of food, our small numerical strength, in the midst of a country where every individual was an enemy, would have induced me to vote in the affirmative of the proposition which was carried into effect, if I had a vote to give. It was necessary to be on the spot in order to understand the horrible necessity which existed. War, unfortunately, presents too many occasions on which a law immutable in all ages and common to all nations, requires that private interests should be sacrificed to a great general interest, and that even humanity should be forgotten. It is for posterity to judge whether this terrible situation was that in which Bonaparte was placed. For my own part, I have a perfect conviction that he could not do otherwise than yield to the dire necessity of the case. It was the advice of the council, whose opinion was unanimous in favour of the execution, that governed him. Indeed, I ought in truth to say that he yielded only in the last extremity, and was one of those, perhaps, who beheld the massacre with the deepest pain. After the siege of Jaffa, the plague began to exhibit itself with a little more virulence. We lost between seven and eight hundred men by the contagion during the campaign of Syria. Footnote. 
Sir Walter Scott says that heaven sent this pestilence amongst us to avenge the massacre of Jaffa. End footnote. During our march on Saint-Jean-d'Arc, which was commenced on the 14th of March, the army neither obtained the brilliant triumphs nor encountered the numerous obstacles spoken of in certain works. Nothing of importance occurred but a rash skirmish of General Lannes, who, in spite of contrary orders from Bonaparte, obstinately pursued a troop of mountaineers into the passes of Nablus. On returning, he found the mountaineers placed in ambush in great numbers amongst rocks, the windings of which they were well acquainted with, whence they fired close upon our troops, whose situation rendered them unable to defend themselves. During the time of this foolish and useless enterprise, especially while the firing was brisk, Bonaparte exhibited much impatience, and it must be confessed his anger was but natural. The Nablusians halted at the openings of the mountain defiles. Bonaparte reproached Lan bitterly for having uselessly exposed himself, and, quote, sacrificed without any object a number of brave men, end quote. Lan excused himself by saying that the mountaineers had defied him, and he wished to chastise the rabble. We are not in a condition to play the swaggerer, replied Napoleon. In four days we arrived before Saint-Jean-d'Arc, where we learned that Jezer had cut off the head of our envoy, Meillet du Château Renault, and thrown his body into the sea in a sack. This cruel pasha was guilty of a great number of similar executions. The waves frequently drove dead bodies towards the coast, and we came upon them whilst bathing. The details of the siege of Acre are well known. Although surrounded by a wall, flanked with strong towers, and having besides a broad and deep ditch defended by works, this little fortress did not appear likely to hold out against French valour and the skill of our corps of engineers and artillery. But the ease and rapidity with which Jaffa had been taken occasioned us to overlook in some degree the comparative strength of the two places and the difference of their respective situations. At Jaffa we had sufficient artillery. At Saint-Jean-d'Arc we had not. At Jaffa we had to deal only with a garrison left to itself. At Saint-Jean-d'Arc we were opposed by a garrison strengthened by reinforcements of men and supplies of provisions, supported by the English fleet and assisted by European science. Sir Sidney Smith was beyond doubt the man who did us the greatest injury. Footnote. Sir Sidney Smith was the only Englishman besides the Duke of Wellington who defeated Napoleon in military operations. The third Englishman opposed to him, Sir John Moore, was compelled to make a precipitate retreat through the weakness of his force. End footnote. Much has been said respecting his communications with the General-in-Chief. The reproaches which the latter cast upon him for endeavouring to seduce the soldiers and officers of the army by tempting offers were the more singular, even if they were well-founded, inasmuch as these means are frequently employed by leaders in war. Footnote. At one time, the French general was so disturbed by them as to endeavour to put a stop to them, which object he effected by interdicting all communication with the English 
and signifying in an order of the day that their commodore was a madman this being relieved in the army so enraged sir sidney smith that in his wrath he sent a challenge to napoleon the latter replied that he had too many weighty affairs on his hands to trouble himself in so trifling a matter had it indeed been the great marlborough it might have been worthy his attention still if the english sailor was absolutely bent upon fighting he would send him a bravo from the army and show them a small portion of neutral ground where the mad commodore might land and satisfy his humour to the full note editor of eighteen thirty six edition end note. End footnote. as to the embarking of french prisoners on board a vessel in which the plague existed the improbability of the circumstance alone but especially the notorious facts of the case repel this odious accusation i observed the conduct of sir sidney smith closely at the time and i remarked in him a chivalric spirit which sometimes hurried him into trifling eccentricities but i affirm that his behaviour towards the french was that of a gallant enemy i have seen many letters in which the writers informed him that they quote, were very sensible of the good treatment which the french experienced when they fell into his hands end quote. let any one examine sir sidney's conduct before the capitulation of el arish and after its rupture and then they can judge of his character footnote napoleon when at st helena in speaking of the siege of acre said quote, sidney smith is a brave officer he displayed considerable ability in the treaty for the evacuation of egypt by the french he took advantage of the discontent which he found to prevail amongst the french troops at being so long away from france and other circumstances he manifested great honour in sending immediately to Kleber the refusal of lord keith to ratify the treaty which saved the french army if he had kept it a secret seven or eight days longer cairo would have been given up to the turks and the french army necessarily obliged to surrender to the english he also showed great humanity and honour in all his proceedings towards the french who fell into his hands he landed at havre for some sottise of a bet he had made according to some to go to the theatre others said it was for espionage however that may be he was arrested and confined in the temple as a spy and at one time it was intended to try and execute him shortly after i returned from italy he wrote to me from his prison to request that i would intercede for him but under the circumstances in which he was taken i could do nothing for him he is active intelligent intriguing and indefatigable but i believe that he is mezzo the chief cause of the failure at acre was that he took all my battering train which was on board of several small vessels had it not been for that i would have taken acre in spite of him he behaved very bravely and was well seconded by Philippot, a Frenchman of talent, who had studied with me as an engineer. There was a Major Douglas also who behaved very gallantly. The acquisition of five or six hundred seamen as gunners was a great advantage to the Turks, whose spirit they revived, and whom they showed how to defend the fortress. But he committed a great fault in making sorties which cost the lives of two or three hundred brave fellows 
without the possibility of success for it was impossible he could succeed against the number of french who were before acre i would lay a wage that he lost half of his crew in them he dispersed proclamations amongst my troops which certainly shook some of them and i in consequence published an order stating that he was mad and forbidding all communication with him some days after he sent by means of a flag of truce a lieutenant or a midshipman with a letter containing a challenge to me to meet him at some place he pointed out in order to fight a duel i laughed at this and sent him back an intimation that when he brought marlborough to fight me i would meet him notwithstanding this i like the character of the man Note, voices from st helena volume four page two hundred and eight End note. End footnote. all our manoeuvres our works and attacks were made with that levity and carelessness which overconfidence inspires Kleber, whilst walking with me one day in the lines of our camp frequently expressed his surprise and discontent the trenches said he do not come up to my knees besieging artillery was of necessity required we commenced with field artillery this encouraged the besieged who perceived the weakness of our resources the besieging artillery consisting only of three twenty-four pounders and six eighteen pounders was not brought up until the end of april and before that period three assaults had taken place with very serious loss on the fourth of may our powder began to fail us this cruel event obliged us to slacken our fire we also wanted shot and an order of the day fixed a price to be given for all balls according to their calibre which might be picked up after being fired from the fortress or the two ships of the line the tiger and theseus which were stationed on each side of the harbour these two vessels embarrassed the communication between the camp and the trenches but though they made much noise they did little harm a ball from one of them killed an officer on the evening the siege was raised the enemy had within the walls some excellent riflemen chiefly albanians they placed stones one over the other on the walls put their firearms through the interstices and thus completely sheltered fired with destructive precision on the ninth of april general caffarelli so well known for his courage and talents was passing through the trench his hand resting as he stooped on his hip to preserve the equilibrium which his wooden leg impaired his elbow only was raised above the trench he was warned that the enemy's shot fired close upon us did not miss the smallest object he paid no attention to any observation of this kind and in a few instants his elbow joint was fractured amputation of the arm was judged indispensable the general survived the operation eighteen days bonaparte went regularly twice a day to his tent by his order added to my friendship for caffarelli i scarcely ever quitted him shortly before he expired he said to me my dear bourienne be so good as to read to me voltaire's preface to the esprit de loi when i returned to the tent of the general-in-chief he asked how is caffarelli i replied he is near his end 
but he asked me to read him Voltaire's preface to Le Esprit de Loi. He has just fallen asleep. Bonaparte said, Bah! To wish to hear that preface? How singular! He went to see Caffarelli, but he was still asleep. I returned to him that evening and received his last breath. He died with the utmost composure. His death was equally regretted by the soldiers and the men of science who accompanied us. It was a just regret due to that distinguished man, in whom very extensive information was united with great courage and amiable disposition. On the 10th of May, when an assault took place, Bonaparte proceeded at an early hour to the trenches. Footnote. Sir Sidney Smith, in his official report of the assault on the 8th of May, says that Napoleon was distinctly seen directing the operation. End footnote. Croisier, who was mentioned on our arrival at Damanhur and on the capture of Jaffa, had in vain courted death since the commencement of the siege. Life had become insupportable to him since the unfortunate affair at Jaffa. He, as usual, accompanied his general to the trenches. Believing that the termination of the siege, which was supposed to be near, would postpone indefinitely the death which he sought, he mounted a battery. In this situation, his tall figure uselessly provoked all the enemy's shots. Croisier, come down, I command you. You have no business there, cried Bonaparte in a loud and imperative tone. Croisier remained without making any reply. A moment after, a ball passed through his right leg. Amputation was not considered indispensable. On the day of our departure, he was placed on a litter, which was borne by sixteen men alternately, eight at a time. I received his farewell between Gaza and El Arish, where he died of tetanus. His modest tomb will not be often visited. The siege of Saint-Jean-d'Arc lasted sixty days. During that time, eight assaults and twelve sorties took place. In the assault of the 8th of May, more than 200 men penetrated into the town. Victory was already shouted, but the breach having been taken in reverse by the Turks, it was not approached without some degree of hesitation, and the men who had entered were not supported. The streets were barricaded. The cries, the howlings of the women who ran through the streets, throwing, according to the custom of the country, dust in the air, excited the male inhabitants to a desperate resistance, which rendered unavailing this short occupation of the town by a handful of men who, finding themselves left without assistance, retreated towards the breach. Many who could not reach it perished in the town. During this assault, Duroc, who was in the trench, was wounded in the right thigh by the splinter from a shell fired against the fortifications. Fortunately, this accident only carried away the flesh from the bone which remained untouched. He had a tent in common with several other aides-de-camp, but for his better accommodation I gave him mine, and I scarcely ever quitted him. Entering his tent one day about noon, I found him in a profound sleep. The excessive heat had compelled him to throw off all covering, and part of his wound was exposed. I perceived a scorpion, which had crawled up the leg of the camp-bed, and approached very near to the wound. I was just in time to hurl it to the ground. 
the sudden motion of my hand awoke Duroc. We often bathed in the sea, sometimes the English, perhaps after taking a double allowance of grog, would fire at our heads, which appeared above water. I am not aware that any accident was occasioned by their cannonade, but as we were beyond reach of their guns, we paid scarcely any attention to the firing. It was seen a subject of amusement to us. Had our attack on Saint-Jean-d'Arc been less precipitate, and had the siege been undertaken according to the rules of war, the place would not have held out three days. One assault, like that of the 8th of May, would have been sufficient. If, in the situation in which we were on the day when we first came in sight of the ramparts of Acre, we had made a less inconsiderate estimate of the strength of the place. If we had likewise taken into consideration the active cooperation of the English and the Ottoman port, our absolute want of artillery of sufficient calibre, our scarcity of gunpowder and the difficulty of procuring food, we certainly should not have undertaken the siege, and that would have been by far the wisest course. Towards the end of the siege, the General-in-Chief received intelligence of some trifling insurrections in northern Egypt. An angel had excited them, and the heavenly messenger, who had condescended to assume a name, was called the Mahdi, or El Mohdi. This religious extravagance, however, did not last long, and tranquillity was soon restored. All that the fanatic Mahdi, who shrouded himself in mystery, succeeded in doing was to attack our rear by some vagabonds, whose illusions were dissipated by a few musket shots. End of chapter 18